leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Wang trained as an electrical engineer, but his experience as a cancer survivor led him into the world of healthcare investment banking and then to his current role as CEO of the cancer therapeutics company Refuge Biotechnologies. Refuge is leveraging CRISPR technology, but rather than editing genes, the company is using it as a way to activate or inhibit specific genes by harnessing it for its targeting mechanism. We spoke to Wang about his journey from patient to CEO, the company's technology, and why he believes this will lead to safer and more effective cancer therapies. Bing, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Danny. I appreciate appreciate you taking the time. We're going to talk about CRISPR, cancer, and why you think Refuge approach will lead to better cancer therapies. Before we talk about the company, though, I'd like to start with you. You spent 10 years as a healthcare investment banker. You have a PhD in electrical engineering, and you yourself are a cancer survivor. I'm wondering if you might begin by talking a little about what led you to co-found a cancer therapeutics company. And how your background may have shaped the way you understand cancer and the approach you're taking. One of the reasons that I got into this field was that, um, you know, a lot of people ask me, how come you have a double E and yet you are focusing on life sciences? Don't you want to, say, cover tech companies while you're, while you're a banker? Well, the main reason was that in my last year at Princeton, when I was 25, um, I had cancer, I had a rare type of sarcoma. And... Um, it was actually quite rare, so the Princeton physician said, look, you're going to Memorial Stone Kettering. This is a very rare type of sarcoma, so we want you to see the best. Um, so I was scheduled for surgery on September 17, 2001. However, uh, 9-11 happened. I cannot get into Manhattan. Uh, my surgeon was stuck in upstate New York, I believe. So last minute, uh, we called the other fantastic cancer center, uh, that's close to New Jersey, which is UPenn Medical School, and um, and said, look, you know, I need to get surgery on September 17. Uh, I can't get in the city. Can I do surgery at uh, UPenn? And they said yes. And really, within very quick order, I managed to get my first surgery on October 3rd, uh, 2001. Did not clear the margin, so they uh, had a second surgery on October 17th. And, um, you know, I was very fortunate. And after that, uh, late in December, I had six weeks of radiation. Um, and after that, two more surgeries for, for reconstruction. 
Um, so that really sparked my interest in healthcare. You know, uh, you see this among folks a lot, but it really does change your outlook on, on what is really relevant. So after that, I actually thought and tried to apply my electrical engineering uh, skill set to healthcare, wherever I can find. And, and I was actually on the tenure track for three years um, as an assistant professor in electrical engineering. And I tried every different way to apply the, the optical system building knowledge that I know to healthcare. I just couldn't find a workable idea. So when I, when I left academia and went into Wall Street, you know, I made sure that whatever I do is healthcare related and definitely have a very deep focus in, in oncology. And then, um, because of the optical system background, as well as my time really deep diving into cancer therapy as an investment banker, you know, I really saw the, the, I don't want to say disconnect, but I would say the similarities between biological systems in the sense that the protein pathways are very much like circuits. Cells have an operating system. Cells have programs and genes very much similar to a lot of electrical engineering concepts and electrical engineering systems. And um, I was literally waiting for our technology, this, you know, Stanley's um, combining cell membrane receptors to decast for something that is very much a control system in concept and apply it to a biological system. How did the company come about? The time that we found it at Refuge was um, a little bit um, by, by accident, actually. So uh, right around 2013, 2014, for my investment banking job, I cover life science companies. I start to really deep dive into immune oncology. Then right around towards the end of 2014, one of my clients, um, this guy named Mark fisher Colbury, who's a CEO at um, LabSite, asked me one time over lunch, he goes, Bing, have you heard of this technology called CRISPR? I said, no. He said, uh, well, take a look at it. It's really, really interesting. So I went back to the office and asked one of my colleagues, um, this, this person I've worked for many years, his name is Chelsea. I said, Chelsea, have you heard of this technology called CRISPR? She said, actually, yes. Um, I don't know what it's about, but I know somebody on my alumni WeChat group does this stuff. And I think he's actually local in, in, in the Bay Area. So I said, well, why don't we... Um, you know, reach out to him, cold call him, and, and grab lunch and see if we can learn something about this. Um, so she reached out to my co-founder, Stanley Chi, who um, is an assistant professor at Stanford at the time. We came out and grabbed lunch and beer, and after three-hour conversation, we clicked and decided to start a company on the spot. <laughs> so that's how the company got founded. And the funny thing is, we um, couldn't come up with a name for the company. We had a few tries. That sounds like, you know, really weird transformer names. So we just named it after the bar that we first met, which is the refuge in downtown Menlo Park. <laughs> well, we, we've certainly seen a lot of excitement around CAR-T cell therapies. Can, can you explain CAR-T cell therapies, how they work? Sure. I think I'll actually use my double E background um, and my communications background to, to use an analogy. The way I think of CAR-T is um, kind of like a walkie-talkie. You know, Alice is talking to Bob. And... Um, you know, CAR-T is really you take this T-cell, uh, where Alice, and you replace the antenna that Alice has uh, such that instead of talking to Bob, it talks to Charlie, or you can call it cancer cell. Um, that is what CAR-T is today, is that, you know, patient comes in, you take out their T-cell, you modify it genetically, so they express a different receptor that allows it to home after um, cancer antigens. But... 
you know, um, our cells are less like a walkie-talkie. You know, the, the cells in our body is much closer to a iPhone, right? You think about a typical iPhone or a smartphone, it has three or more antennas. One allows you to talk to other cell phones. One allows you to connect to Wi-Fi. Another one connects you to Bluetooth. Um, so this is kind of like the GPCR receptors on, on your cells. And then you can control the touchscreen. This is kind of like the integrin receptors. Um, and some generations of, of iPhone has a fingerprint reader. And this is very much similar to the TCR receptors in your cells that allows you to recognize uh, protein fingerprints. And the other part of the cells uh, that is very uh, much in common with the smartphone is that, you know, they both have an operating system. The uh, iPhone has an iOS. The cells has a 3 billion base pair genome. And, um, you know, so the way I think of CAR-T is, is just very rudimentary form of changing the, the fundamental capability of communication, whereas your cells have inherently so much other capability that far exceed, you know, the capability of a simple, you know, walkie-talkie analogy. Well, while CAR-T cells have, have had great promise, there, there have been concerns both about safety and efficacy. How challenging has it been to get CAR-T therapies to work from a safety or efficacy point of view? Sure, I think... Um, Initially, for the primary uh, application that's approved today, which is um, hematological malignancies that express CD19, um, the efficacy has been pretty good, really, really good around a certain type of leukemia. For lymphoma, the response rate is somewhat lower. Um, some of the safety concern really has to do with the fact that, you know, the, the immune system is a very aggressive feedback system. So once you start to tinker with it, some of these things can go out of whack. And it, it goes into, an, you know, our initial analogy of walkie-talkie in that, you know, if you, for example, if you go to a karaoke machine where actually on a speakerphone, sometimes you'll hear a feedback system uh, if you get too, you know, if the speaker gets too close to, to the receiver. Um, a more complex version of that happens in the immune system. And right now, um, you know, that has limited the broader application of the CAR-T therapy. Um, and I see that as really a reflection of the, you know, the initial, I don't want to use the word primitive, but a very initial version of how we are programming T-cells. Uh, with technologies like Refuge, where we actually allow to have a much more conditional activation of genes, conditional down activation of genes, the way we can program these T-cells, the way you can say, you know, launch a bunch of apps on your iPhone, you know, you go to the, you go to the app store and uh, you can download Gmail, you can download Facebook and Instagram. Imagine we can do that, you know, at the cellular level where we can actually turn on and off these genes, you know, based on the condition. Then we can actually mitigate a lot of the safety concerns uh, surrounding CAR-T right now, as well as increase its efficacy. Uh, CRISPR is often thought of as a powerful editing tool, but you're not using it for that purpose. Can you explain what CRISPR is and how you're using it? Sure. Well, I'll be honest with you. My last biology class was in ninth grade. So I'll tell you the extent of my understanding of CRISPR. Uh, my understanding of CRISPR is simply it's um, a genetic GPS attached to a pair of DNA scissors. Uh, that's basically how I understand CRISPR. And you can use it to edit um, and insert uh, genomes into any type of cells. 
Um, however, uh, you know, we're not using CRISPR exactly. We're using a technology that Stanley invented a few years ago called CRISPR interference. What he recognized was that the CRISPR protein um, can cut very efficiently. It can also target a very specific set of uh, locations in the genome by using something called the guide RNA. So he mutated that protein so it still has the what I call the genetic GPS component, but instead of a pair of scissors, he replaced it with a on and off switch, very much like the light switch on the walls inside you know your office. And with that, he can deliver an on and off switch to any location in the genome, and we can turn on and off genes. Well, what what are you actually attaching to it to either inhibit or activate a gene? Well, a CRISPR, um, a modified CRISPR protein, sometimes called a DCAS, uh, will inhibit regulation on its own, but it's not very efficient. So we actually attach something called a CRAB domain. This is a transcription um, inhibitor to these proteins if we want to turn off a gene. And we can turn, you know, attach something called a VPR uh, that can activate transcription. So both an on-off switch can be attached to DCAS um, once it's attached to a particular sequence in the genome. And, and do those activators or inhibitors, are they unique to the gene you're targeting, or are they used universally? They are um, somewhat universal, um, though I would say some genes are harder to turn on than others. Um, you know, you have to think about not just the gene itself, but, you know, uh, what's the promoter that's uh, driving these genes, and they have a different level of activation. But generally, we've been pretty successful in terms of using the CRAB domain to downregulate a number of, for example, checkpoint inhibitor genes. And how does the process of creating one of your therapies compare to the approach for making a, a CAR-T therapy? Is it, is it essentially similar? Is, it, is there a cost efficiency to doing it this way? It is quite similar. Um, you know, I call our manufacturing process CAR-T+, because we are delivering uh, a set of genes using either a lentiviral vector or retroviral vector into the patient's T cell. Now, because we provide a lot more function, a lot more decision ability to this T cell, our proteins are inherently larger. So I call our manufacturing process CAR-T+. But to every extent possible, we try to use whatever is commercially available for CAR-T for our own manufacturing process. Now, if you think about the efficiency from both, um, uh, you know, from a clinical and a cost perspective, right now the trend of immunotherapy is to combine different modalities of immunotherapy uh, into the patient. So, you know, say five years from now, a typical patient may get some kind of a modified T cell injected into um, his or her body. Uh, then it may get additional monoclonal antibodies such as a PD-1 treatment or CTLA-4 or a TIM-3 antibody. And every time these therapies, whether it's a cell or antibody, goes into the patient, it goes to the entire body. Imagine then if the tumor is in the lungs or the tumor is in the large intestines, you may not want these basically activated immune cells to target, you know, their small intestines to cause colitis or their joints to cause other autoimmune side effects. So it, it really limits the ability of companies um, to put a lot of therapies together. Now, imagine then you actually have a therapy like refugees therapy on a single cell. 
I have all the capability of the best-in-class car, but at the same time, I also downregulate the expression of PD-1. I also downregulate the expression of, of TIM-3. Whereas somebody else need to buy therapies from three different companies to inject to this patient, we actually just have one therapy. And and the PD-1 and the TIM-3 um, checkpoint inhibitor, for example, their biologies will only be activated or downregulated at the site of the tumor because our cells can make the decisions in vivo. Since I, you're, I take it you're working with a patient's own T cells, is that correct? Right now, we're still doing animal studies. Um, we hope to get into uh, IND um, sometime in 2020. But the expectation is you'd be using a, a patient's own T cells to modify? Yes. For now, our initial program is focusing on autologous modification of T cells. Um, we have some thoughts around um, allogeneic approach as well, um, but our first program will be uh, autologous. So how customized would a therapy be to a patient's specific tumors? Um, in many ways, uh, for autologous, obviously, it's the patient's own cells. But if you were to think about the genes that we can, say, control, um, we can actually turn the T cells very much like, literally like the app store. So based on this patient's tumor profile, we can go in there and go and say, well, there's a high expression of, say, HER2 antigen on these tumor, so we can pick an, a HER2 antigen on this T cell to, to recognize the tumor. And then based on either uh, sequencing or pathology or other type of diagnostic technique, we think, well, there's an overexpression of PDL1, there's an overexpression of TIM3 and potentially LAG3, for example, and those will be the genes that we downregulate. And they would actually uh, be pretty easily customized to that patient's particular tumor signature from an, from an immunological perspective. So would you expect your therapy not to be used in combination with, with others? You know, it's hard to say at this point. You know, I would say we can eliminate or combine a large number of, of, of immunotherapies, so both on the checkpoint inhibitor side as well as the T-cell therapy side. Um, however, we can't, we cannot put a radiation machine to the T cell. Uh, maybe you still have some kind of a chemotherapy as standard of care. Um, so it is possible in a future therapy that we can eliminate, you know, uh, three out of the four or four out of the five most expensive component of, of the future combination therapy. But if the surgeon says, you know, we still think radiation is needed or we still think certain type of chemos is needed, uh, they will still get those. Uh, as you mentioned, your, your pre-IND, what's the indications you're pursuing and, and how are you prioritizing indications? Sure. Our first indication would still be CD19. Um, and I'll be very clear, that is not driven by market need. But CD19 is the most well-established um, CAR-T program right now. A number of player are, you know, you have two in Novartis and and uh, Gilead already in commercial stages, um, and Juno will sell Gene not far behind. But our first program will still be CD19 because we think that is the easiest and quickest to validate our technology. You know, as any biotech with a new platform technology will tell you, uh, the most important thing is actually to do a proof of concept first in animal, then in human, to show that our platform works. But our second program around HER2, though, will actually go after cellular tumors. And that one we see we have a significantly uh, much larger market and differentiation. Right now, as you may know, um, 
CAR T therapy just have very limited clinical response in solid tumors. And this is where we can really show our differentiation. Bing Wang, CEO of Refuge Biotechnologies. Bing, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Danny. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.